They're laughing at us overseas. Some allies no longer trust us, and they're looking for other countries to fill the void. America's global credibility gap. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. The cover headline on the new European magazine this week is Bloody Idiot. The magazine is talking about our president. It's not alone. As NBC's Andrea Mitchell reported, Trump's first NATO speech was seen as undiplomatic at best. This was, uh, by all accounts, just watching it. It was painful to watch. This was his debut at NATO, and they were really angry. What didn't help was the push scene round the world, as CNN's Don Lemon noted. President Trump pushing past the prime minister of Montenegro to be front and center with a group of world leaders. What is this moment... Um, seen around the world say about President Trump? <laughs> well, it's not, a, it's not a good look, obviously. When Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, the French president called on American scientists to move to France. They will find in France a second homeland. I call on them, come and work here with us. Germany's Angela Merkel says... The time when Germany will rely on America is over. The times in which we can fully count on others are somewhat over, as I've understood over the past few days. Therefore, I can only say that we Europeans must really take our destiny into our own hands. And in Britain, a fiery debate broke out in Parliament after a million Britons signed a petition to cancel Trump's state visit to London. Do the decent thing and ban the visit. This man is not fit to walk in the footsteps of Nelson Mandela. The U.S. president has long been considered the leader of the free world. But a new Quinnipiac poll finds that only 46% of Americans now say that of Donald Trump. Even more striking, 29% of Americans say German Chancellor Angela Merkel now fills that role. Damage to America's credibility is having a ripple effect around the world. Later in the show, we'll speak with retired Ambassador Ryan Crocker, one of America's most experienced diplomats, about the challenges for American foreign policy and U.S. security. But first, we'll take a look at how our allies perceive us five months into the Trump presidency. With me are George Benitez, an expert on NATO and transatlantic security, who's been an advisor to both the State Department and the Secretary of Defense, and Andrea Murta, a Brazilian expert on Latin American politics and economics. Full disclosure, both are associated with the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., where I am also a senior non-resident fellow. George, let's start with you. How much damage did the recent NATO's head of, head of state summit do to American credibility? I think there was considerable damage done by President Trump's behavior at the NATO meeting in Brussels. Um, we've seen for some weeks and months now senior officials, including Secretary of Defense Mattis and Vice President Pence, that have tried to send a very positive and reassuring message to our allies that the United States will stand by its NATO commitments. But yet when President Trump himself had an opportunity to speak to these NATO leaders face to face, he chose deliberately to not say that he was committed to the Article 5 mission. Um, this did not happen until much later, and it was done on the margins of a bilateral meeting here in Washington with the president of Romania. Um, so this is something and he's that... Also, 
I was just going to say, he's also been overtly critical, almost snarky about people like the Germans. He has. We've seen this from his tweets and some of his comments and the press conferences. He's very critical of the Allies. Um, on the one hand, like all American presidents, he uh, is trying to encourage the Allies to spend more on defense. We feel we want them to have a more balanced and fair contribution to transatlantic security. But unlike other presidents, he is doing so in a very public and rude behavior. He's actually doing some things that are in, inaccurate. Um, he keeps saying that the NATO allies owe NATO money. Um, and when, in fact, they don't. It is just a commitment for them to spend more on their own national defense. It's not money that they owe to NATO or to the United States. But President Trump seems to be taking this personally. And and what's what's the reaction behind the scenes? I mean, they, they hear a president saying uh, things that directly contradict long-term policy, directly contradict his own top aides. Uh, what do they say to each other? Well, one of the key strongest themes we're hearing from foreign officials behind closed doors is there is uncertainty about what is the U.S. position on Article 5. This is bad for the internal dynamics within the alliance, but it's very bad for the security situation in Europe because there must be no uncertainty about the U.S. defense commitment to NATO. It must be very crystal clear if we are to deter foreign aggressors. And at the same time, it also raises doubt because when they hear the American president say one thing and they see cabinet officials and the vice president say other things, they're just not sure who it is that is speaking for the United States and who is making decisions on NATO policy. Andrea, from Latin America, as, as uh, officials down there watch all of this play out, uh, how are they reacting? Well, uh, the change in both tone and substance that Trump has already uh, promoted within Latin America has been received with a lot of concern uh, in the region. So the first time that uh, the region really took a, was taken aback by, by Trump's behavior was back in the campaign when he accused uh, Mexico sending its wars to the United States and uh, mentioning uh, rapists and killers. And for Latin Americans, that he didn't mean just Mexico. He meant all of the region. Latinos have this sense of, of uh, community. So it, it was kind of an, an insult to everyone. Uh, and in terms of substance, we saw very early on in the first days of the presidency that he removed uh, the United States from the TPP, so in uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. So in terms of uh, international trade and engagement, uh, there is the fear that we're going to see less and less involvement of the United States to the detriment of probably all countries in the region. And what's happening is that, well, Latin Americans still need to trade and still need to promote their interests, so they're probably going to be looking to other partners around the world to do that. And this is uh, um, the moment is ripe for more engagement with China, for more engagement with Russia, um, in ways that are probably not even in the interest of the United States. And how how do they look at the wall? They hear the rhetoric about the wall. Is this a wall against them, or is this just a wall against Mexicans? No, absolutely. It, whatever Trump says about Mexicans or, or other countries in Latin America, it's taken as a, a division towards the entire region. So uh, the entire Latin America gets mad uh, when they hear this type of of commentary because it's an attack on on immigrants. Uh, it's an attack on uh, on the, the region. The, the uh, cultural exchanges that we have, and it's not—it's definitely not well received uh, uh, for the majority of the, the Latin American countries, not only in governments but also amongst the population. George, from the European perspective, does this uh, sudden 
rift, shall we say, with the Americans uh, mean more European unity, or does it throw things uh, into chaos there as well? Well, there is a lot of confusion um, because some of the Europeans are taking this as, well, we need to do more, uh, with, have more defense integration within the Europeans on our own. Uh, the Germans and the French are taking the lead on this. Um, but yet there are other Europeans, especially those that are closest to the Russian border, who feel that it is essential to maintain a strong U.S. presence, a strong U.S. commitment, and they're very much worried about their future and how the, this affects the deteriorating security situation in Europe. Andrea, when Latin Americans look at Trump, what do they look at for the next three and a half years? I mean, what are going to be the big issues for them? Well, they expect less and less engagement with the White House itself. Uh, Not that Latin America has ever been a big priority for the United States, uh, at least not in the past decade uh, in, in modern history. So Latin American countries are kind of used to be put on the back burner in terms of the global stage. But this, this, uh, the expectation is that the next four or maybe more years are really going to be an era of less and less engagement with the U.S. The United States, uh, it's impossible to completely avoid its influence in the region. So what people are doing is really trying to engage with other parts of the, the Trump administration because obviously the government is more than Trump himself. Uh, so they are connecting directly with Congress and trying to uh, um, have closer relationships with uh, congressmen here in the United States. They are looking into specific agencies like either USTR, the trade or commerce and agriculture and seeing what avenues they still have of, uh, of maintaining some sort of a dialogue. But there's a sort of a sentiment that we're going to have to wait this out um, in terms of uh, whoever wants to have a stronger ties with the United States, be it in trade or scientific exchange or even culture exchange. We need to take a break. My guests are George Benitez and Andrea Morta of the uh, Atlantic Council. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about American credibility in the world. My guests in this segment are Andrea Murta and George Benitez, both of the Atlantic Council. George, before we broke, uh, Andrea was saying that Latin Americans are looking for ways to get around Trump, uh, go right into the bureaucracy, right into the, the Congress. Is that true also of the Europeans? What kind of dialogue's going on at a secondary level? I think you're also seeing a similar trend occurring among our European allies. I think at the heads of state level, the emphasis is on keeping things superficial, keeping things positive, building a strong, healthy, positive relationship with Trump. Uh, He's not a a president who is very interested in details or policy issues. Um, And so, so many of our allies and their governments are thinking of discussing the policy issues and and their plans with the United States bureaucracy, with the Department of Defense, with their officials in the State Department and in the White House, rather than taking it up to the highest level and addressing it with the president himself. But how do they do deals? How do they do agreements when you have such uncertainty with a man who just kind of changes his mind? Well, that's one of the challenges that they're wrestling with. Um, They're not sure whether they'll be able to reach agreements with the president because of his unpredictability. Um, They're also not sure even if they reach an agreement with him, how long it will last. Uh, He's because of his mercurial temperament. 
so that's why I think they're placing more and more of an emphasis on uh, members of the U.S. foreign policy community and the bureaucracy. Um, we're seeing that they're, they're d- dealing with these things at the policy level. And I think even the president will be happy with that because there's been considerable reporting that um, he doesn't take most of his presidential daily briefs. Um, he shrunk, he's asked them to be shrunk to one-page summaries. Um, and so he's, he himself is not interested in these things. And he also has uh, what, what we seem to see is he favors positive reporting and positive news. Um, he doesn't care so much about the accuracy of the news as so long as it's positive. Andrea, we saw pictures coming out of Europe of European leaders basically making fun of Trump. Um, are people in Latin America laughing? Well, yes and no. So Latin Americans are good-spirited people. There are always some memes and uh, jokes going around the Internet about our own presidents and, yes, also about the American president. Uh, but there's more concern than laughter, I think. And it's not just because of what they see in the United States, but it's about the forces that this new behavior coming from the Norses are unleashing uh, in their own countries. So there's a lot of uh, new nationalism uh, growing uh, within Latin America. And it's an important period for us. Uh, there's a very important elections next year in Mexico. There are elections next year in Brazil. Well, in Brazil, we hope it's next year. It's not, it's not clear um, what's happening with the government there. Um, but we are going to see a transition, probably expected the transition of power in Cuba. Uh, so there's a lot happening at the same time when we have these negative signals from the United States. And that is strengthening some forces that are maybe populistic or maybe nationalistic. And they're not the ones that are necessarily the most serious and necessarily the most uh, trustworthy to engage with the with the global arena uh, going forward. So the concern is not just because of the, what the United States is doing uh, around the world, but also of the effects that this are having in our own country. George, you've been an advisor to the Department of Defense. Uh, does all this uncertainty empower the Russians? I think it creates the environment of uncertainty and unreliability. I think they're very happy to see that our European allies are not sure of where the United States will land on certain issues. Um, and I think it creates a very dangerous environment because of the, the more that President Trump uh, gives the appearance that the United States might not honor our defense commitments, that raises the possibility that the Russians may do a provocative act. Uh, no one expected or thought that Putin would use military force in Ukraine, yet he did. No one thought that Putin would use military force in Syria, yet he did. Uh, we see in Putin an Amer- uh, a Russian president that takes a risk that no one expects him to take, and the, the fact that President Trump is raising the, the questioning the U.S. defense commitments might make it more likely that we'll see more provocative acts by the Russians in Europe in the future. You talk to your buddies in the Pentagon. How concerned are they? They're very concerned uh, at all levels in the Pentagon, from the most senior, uh, particularly those that are dealing uh, with our European allies and with Russia. On the one hand, they're trying to uh, publicly be reassuring. Uh, They're also very frustrated by some of the mixed messages that are coming out of the White House. But at the same time, we are making some progress on certain issues. Like I said, at the policy level, we're seeing some positive steps. Um, And the new budget sent forth by the Trump administration, uh, not only are they keeping the ERI funding uh, to strengthen deterrence in Europe, but the Trump administration is increasing that funding so that we're able to have more U.S. troops in Europe. I think this is a very positive message, uh, but we need to be more consistent and send more similar messages like this in the future. Andrea, from Latin America, what are the best and worst case scenarios coming over the next few years? 
Well, uh, surprisingly, one of the best scenarios is that we do not create too much fuss with the United States. Uh, the countries are, are feeling that they're coming out of the radar and they don't want to be brought back in because the countries in Latin America, they are very much uh, receiving attention from the United States. It's not necessarily the mo- in the most positive terms. And I mean mostly Mexico. Uh, we're expecting announcements uh, that of a a new policy that was Cuba, and we still have to see how that's going uh, uh, to roll out. Um, there is concern about uh, what the United States is going to do in Venezuela, although for many countries in the region, that's actually a positive development. So that is a, that might be a good thing, a good, uh, a good uh, role for the United States to play, to be a little bit more aggressive uh, with the Venezuelan government. Um, I think the worst is really just uh, having a loss of, uh, of uh, partnership uh, that is continues to be crucial for the for the Latin American countries. Like I said, the United States is George. not. No, go ahead. Sorry, let me let me jump on to George. We've got uh, mm-hmm. just about a minute, George. Same question to you: best and worst case scenarios from Europe. I think the the best case scenario is that Trump will stop listening to some of his advisors that have that lack experience in foreign policy, that don't understand European security, and that he will start paying more attention to those that have experience, that dealt with these issues before, and that are giving him very good counsel. The worst scenario is that we will continue to do uh, acts or make statements that question our reliability as an ally, and that this will lead to a potential crisis or provocation from Russia in Europe again. That's about all the time we have. George Benitez, Andrea Morta, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you, Lawrence. We'll be back with one of America's most experienced diplomats after a break. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking in this show about American credibility in the world. My guest in this segment is one of America's most experienced diplomats. Ryan Crocker has served as ambassador in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and several other countries under both Democratic and Republican presidents. George W. Bush called him America's Lawrence of Arabia. Good to talk with you, Ambassador. Thanks for having me on, Lawrence. We talked earlier in the show about how the world is looking at America. How damaging do you think all this has been for U.S. foreign policy going forward? Um, I don't think that what has happened so far uh, is irreparable. Uh, I I just hope the president uh, takes to heart that presidential words count. I was pleased that he went to Saudi Arabia. It's a very important relationship for us, as you know. Uh, But it's got to be handled with nuance, uh, which um, he obviously didn't exert. So now we have this issue with Qatar. Uh, So it's uh, time to take a deep breath. Uh, He has got excellent people around him, uh, uh, Jim Mattis and uh, H.R. McMaster, for example. Uh, He just kind of needs to to listen to them uh, and... Understand that this is not a 
uh, a set of campaign stops. Uh, this is formulating and implementing international security policy, and nothing could be more critical. I mean, we really have had foreign policy by soundbite so far, haven't we? Or by tweet, probably. Right. Uh, yes, we, we kind of have, and uh, uh, that is that is no way to run the railroad. Let's let's talk about the Middle East for a second, since that's your particular area of expertise, and that's been so in the news recently. Um, he's, I, I think, the only way to put it would be that he has brought America in on one side of that fundamental geographic and religious divide in the Arab world. Fair characterization. Um, I I would it play out that way, but I, I would. Uh frame it slightly differently. Uh, you know, in the Middle East, sadly, we don't have a choice between democracies and autocracies. Um, uh, what we have is a choice between um, uh, steadiness and order and disorder. Uh, the countries, to my mind, that represent the forces of order the um, Turkey, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the Gulf. Uh, so when he announced his trip, I was I was very very pleased, uh, you know, to start with uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where uh, more than seventy years ago now, uh, FDR forged that historic relationship on the deck of the USS Quincy in Great Bitter Lake. All of those relations uh, deteriorated during the Obama years. It's, it's, it's simply a fact. So for the president to say, uh, new sheriff, uh, I, I'm going to look to our traditional uh, allies in the region, uh, that was good. But again, it's all nuance. No one knows that better than you. And uh, the president did not exactly... Uh, do nuance terribly well. One of one of your old colleagues, Stu Jones. Uh, there's a, a piece of tape bouncing around on the web. Uh, he was is, he was acting or is acting assistant secretary, I think is the title for Middle East. And he was asked when Trump was in Saudi, well, what happened to America's focus on human rights, and why aren't we talking about human rights in Saudi? Is that naive? Are we moving back to a more real politic? Um, well, that's what I mean, uh, Larry, about nuance. Um, uh, clearly, we, we've got to re-knit the strategic relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. It's, um, it, it's not in tatters, but definitely getting frayed on the edges. Uh, so that rightly is and should be the focus of, of emphasis. At the same time, um, you know, we are a nation of values, and uh, I would have hoped that... Uh, the president would say to uh, the king, um, and we're going to have to deal with some human rights issues. Uh, you know, the only way I can sustain this relationship uh, is if we have that kind of frank discussion that leads to action. Uh, you know, it would not have tarnished his visit at all, uh, but it would put the marker down. That there is, there's more to this than um, oil and guns. 
As you said, um, there are, it, it's all shades of gray in the Arab world. There's very little black and white. Um, or not to put words in your mouth, but I think that's effectively what you were saying. Um, is, <laughs> I'll go ahead. I'll put words in your mouth. Right? <laughs> we'll be the oh, first go ahead. Time, they'll be, they'll uh, be right? better than any I come up with. <laughs> Um, but is, is there a layer of even putting in that real politic? Is there a layer of, of hypocrisy in this whole issue of Qatar bad, Qatar supporting terrorism, Saudi good, Saudi fighting terrorism? Uh, you know, uh, again, I, I, I wish he had framed it slightly differently. Um, uh, yeah, clearly fighting terror is important, but you know, we got to remember uh, uh, terror isn't a country. Uh, uh, it's not a policy. It's a tactic. And you and I remember the days of Palestinian terror um, uh, in the uh, 70s and early 80s. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, not the province of any one state group um uh, or even coalition of states. So you need to look at root causes. Uh, Islamic State is is not the disease itself. It's the symptom of the disease. So, you know, that's the conversation I, I wish the president had had. Uh, it is important that we do it. You were tragically at the receiving end of, of some of the first anti-American terrorism with the, the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. And that was ultimately carried out by Iran or, or uh, manipulating local actors, Hezbollah, etc. But if we fast forward to today, and that was in the, the early 80s, fast forward to today, is, in your view, as somebody who really knows that region, is Iran the major terrorist threat out there? Uh, I, I, I pause here because it is pretty complicated. Uh, very interesting how the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran kind of invented as a large-scale suicide bomb attack. Um, but then they got out of the business. So it has transferred from being an exclusively uh, Shia instrument to now being a, uh, uh, a Sunni Arab instrument. It's a little reminder that not, nothing's forever, uh, particularly not in the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, we, we got to look at it holistically. Uh, we got to engage with our partners. Um, but, but we have to focus not just on the military to see the Islamic State, uh, uh, but on the problem of governance writ large in the region. Uh, I, if I had to sum it all up in one word, uh, the, the woes of the region, it would be governance or misgovernance, uh, as the too often seem to be the case. That's what we and they have to get at. Uh, sure, they will push, with our help, Islamic State out of uh, Mosul and eventually out of uh, Iraq and Syria. But the problem won't go away any more than al-Qaeda in Iraq didn't go away when I was ambassador there, and we had extraordinary uh, security and tranquility for a time. But if you don't get at the underlying causes, in this case, uh, one of the main one being... Uh, a Sunni sense of disenfranchisement, uh, uh, we'll be looking at Islamic State 2.0, just as Islamic State is al-Qaeda in Iraq 2.0. Uh, the problem will go on if it's not addressed more fundamentally. 
I was uh, last week. I was in another country where you were ambassador, or Pakistan, um, and they're very nervous. I mean, they look at the U.S. overtly siding with the Saudis. They look at the U.S. talking about going back into Afghanistan. How do you see relations with Pakistan playing out? Um, again, a crucial country. Uh, you know, we talk about the importance of of Iraq uh, with its 25 million people. Well. Pakistan is 185 million people with nuclear weapons. Uh, so we clearly have to pay attention to that relationship, and we have to understand the history of the relationship, at least as the Pakistanis uh, uh, see it. You know, And I had those conversations occasionally when I was uh, ambassador out there. They will never forget the, um, uh, the 1980s and its aftermath, when uh, working with Saudi Arabia on financing, uh, and uh, Pakistan on staging. Uh, uh, we were partners in the anti-Soviet jihad, uh, uh, and it worked. Uh, you know, Russia was uh, the Soviet Union was defeated. That was, incidentally, in my view, the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. But as soon as they were done, gonna... um, then we dropped Pakistan, and um, uh, we and they are still paying the price for that. Let's come back to Russia in a couple of minutes. We need to take a break. I'll be back with Ambassador Ryan Crocker in a few minutes. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm speaking with retired Ambassador Ryan Crocker about America's credibility in the world. Uh, Ambassador, we were we were discussing the Middle East. Um, let's get out of that. We've got about five minutes left. Uh, you mentioned Russia and and Pakistan, Afghanistan at the end of the last segment. Is do you see a resurgent Russia, a resurgent China? in the wake of or in the uh, in the the situation where we have a gap in American leadership? Uh, a great question. I I think uh, the Russians uh, right now are pretty much at full extension. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they simply don't have the means to uh, uh, prosecute policies any further into the region or elsewhere than they're already doing. Um, uh, you know, money counts and they only have so much of it. Uh, uh, so I, I would expect them to maintain what they've got uh, working with uh, Syria, the Syrian government and Iran in Syria, but I don't see them going beyond it. Um, uh, China is it's a very interesting situation. Uh, in South Asia, uh, the, the Chinese have uh, historically uh, batted well below their weight. Uh, I, I spent time in Afghanistan and Pakistan and as others did from Washington in, in trying to get the Chinese to do more, not less. Uh, you know, the Pakistani port of Gwadar, uh, which um, uh, the Chinese have said they will develop into an alternative to uh, ports in Iran and build a railway and a highway that will connect it uh, to the rest of Pakistan and far beyond. Well, we think that would be great. Could they just get on with it? Uh, uh, the same thing in um, in Afghanistan, where they have this mammoth copper concession. They agreed to build a um, a rail link to that site 
that would hook into the uh, rest of the national grid. Uh, absolutely terrific, except they're not doing it. So ironically, given the situation in East Asia, for, for most issues in uh, South Asia and the Middle East, uh, I, I would like to see China do more, not less. Very interesting. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left. Ambassadors, diplomats, uh, you work under every politician across the spectrum. Um, it's part of the job. But we've seen in the last couple of months a number of American diplomats pushing back on Twitter, pushing back by the ambassador, the acting ambassador in China stepping down. How tough is it for a diplomat, particularly an ambassador, to operate in, a, in an unsettled situation like this? Uh, well, uh, America's diplomats uh, have always operated in unsettled situations. It's just that previously the unsettled situations uh, were in the countries to which our ambassadors were accredited, not back here at home. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, all of that said, uh, I, I remember I was ambassador to, to Syria at the time going through the Clinton uh, impeachment process. Um, you know, a, a mega event in our, in our politics, but, uh, you know, internationally, kept the boat steady. Uh, uh, we're America, you know, whatever it is, we'll get through it. We're a nation of laws. Um, so I, it's really, really important, uh, Larry, that uh, our foreign service officers re remind themselves um, that nobody elected them. Uh, they serve the leaders the people did elect. Uh, uh, so find a way forward. Uh, don't carp and moan from the sidelines, or we risk as a service being seen as um, uh, uh, no longer apolitical. I, you mentioned my embassies. Yes, I was an ambassador six times, three times for Republican administrations and three times for Democratic administrations. Um, you know, that's what our military does. That's what we as a service have to be absolutely sure we're doing. Former Ambassador Ryan Crocker, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. That wraps up this show. Thanks to my producer, Dave Bourne. Our theme music is by Dutch percussionist Ruben Van Rompuy. I'm Lawrence Pintak. Follow me on Twitter at L-P-I-N-T-A-K. Visit AmericanFaultLines.com and let us know what you think of the series. Download the podcast of this and previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And join us again next time when we explore more American Fault Lines. <laughs>